0: The first school of osteopathic medicine was founded in 1892, and over 100 years later, there are over 30 schools in the United States alone. However, the public at large still knows very little about this field of medicine, its values, and its practices. Over the course of this podcast, I'm going to attempt to cover the history, practices, and culture of osteopathic medicine. Welcome to Osteocast. hi there my name is parker anderson and for more information about who i am you can view the previous episode of osteocast episode zero but if you don't want to i'll summarize it very quickly i am currently a graduate of the michigan state university biomedical laboratory diagnostics program i am a behavioral health aide at a psychiatric hospital But what I'm most excited about is that I am a recently admitted student to the A.T. Steele University class of 2024 at the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm incredibly excited to be a DO and have the chance to transform lives and honestly to study at the school that started it all. However, sometimes I do kind of feel like a black sheep in terms of osteopathic applicants and accepted students. This isn't the case for all osteopathic students or even the majority. But in my experience, a lot of the people that I met when I was applying and interviewing to medical school, seemed to view osteopathic medicine as their fallback if they didn't get into an American MD school. And I even met some people that viewed it as being on the same caliber as a Caribbean MD school. But I don't really see it that way, and to be honest, with MD and DO getting closer and closer together every year, really, in the future, I don't even see it being that way. But I heard some people say some pretty insane things, like that Osteopathic physicians can't become dermatologists or surgeons or neurologists. I know that the dermatology thing isn't true for a fact, because when I was interviewing at AT Still, I stayed at the house of a DO dermatologist that was doing his residency at the nearby hospital. And some people will even try to tell you that osteopathic physicians aren't real doctors. They're just souped up chiropractors. And again, that couldn't be further from the truth. Many governments throughout the world currently do view the DO degree in the same light as the MD and I just think that it's a little bit ridiculous so part of this show is going to be covering the history uh the issues and the people that are involved in osteopathic medicine now at this point some of you might even be wondering what is osteopathic medicine and that's what I'm going to be attempting to answer in these first few episodes but to summarize really quickly osteopathic medicine or as it's historically been called osteopathy please note that I will be using these two terms interchangeably throughout the course of the show is a field of medicine equivalent to the MD or the quote allopathic field of medicine. You'll often hear DOs call MDs allopathic physicians. Osteopathic physicians or osteopaths can perform physical exams, prescribe medications, perform surgeries, give vaccinations, anything else you would expect a doctor to do. Osteopaths work in every specialty from pediatrics to gastroenterology. However, they traditionally have steered more towards primary care and preventative medicine. This tendency is due in large part to the osteopathic philosophy. This philosophy is the defining difference that separates DOs from MDs. A lot of people think it's OMM, but I'm going to argue that it's this philosophy. This philosophy is the defining difference that separates DOs from MDs, and while MDs are beholden to the Hippocratic Oath, the philosophy behind the practice of a given MD varies greatly from school to school and person to person. DOs, however, base their philosophy of practice on a set of four ideas called the osteopathic principles. These four principles in order are that the body is a whole unit, any person is a combination of a mind, body, and a spirit. The body is capable of self regulation, healing, and maintenance. That structure and function are reciprocally related that is, basically, form equals function. And that rational treatment of patients is based on an understanding of the principles of bodily unity, self regulation, and the relationship between form and function. So, basically, step four says that rational treatment of patients is based on an understanding and in application of the first three. Now, these principles didn't just appear overnight, they were developed by an American physician. This physician, who was also a surgeon, author, and the founder of osteopathic medicine, and the subject of today's episode is Dr. Andrew Taylor Still. So without any further ado, let's dive right into A.T. Still's biography. I would like to point out that my sources for this episode are the biography of A.T. Still provided on the A.T. Still University website, as well as little sprinklings here and there from different sources about that period in American history, as well as, I believe his name is Jim Haxton. He is the current, um, if I remember correctly, the operator of the Museum of Osteopathy at A.T. Still University and a historian for A.T. Still University. And that lecture can be found on YouTube. But I digress. Without any further ado, let's get into the biography of Andrew Taylor Still. So, Andrew Taylor Still, or A.T. Still, was born on August 6, 1828, in Lee County, Virginia, to his father Abram and mother Martha Still. Young A.T. Still's childhood was marked by frequent movement, as Still's father Abram was a Methodist preacher. Abram's preaching was deeply grounded in the Methodist faith, founded by John Wesley. One of Wesley's key ideas being that the church and its teachings should be brought to those who needed it most. Wesley identified that those living the frontier lifestyle were some of the most needy, lacking the ability to pay for basic healthcare services, let alone the ability to travel and attend church. Because of this, Methodist preachers at the time were schooled professionally in medicine, as well as religion as a way to serve the vulnerable populations of the American frontier, roaming the countryside to serve those both in need physically and spiritually. Still's Father Abram rode the circuit of available frontier churches at the time, working both as a physician and a minister to those in need. This led the Still family to move around multiple times between 1834 and 1841 to locations all over both Tennessee and Missouri. However, Abram's strong anti-slavery sermons got him and the family into hot water, and eventually, in 1851, the Still family was reassigned to the Wakarusa Shawnee Mission in Kansas in order to protect Abram and his family. It was here in Kansas that a young Andrew Taylor would begin the journey that would ultimately lead to the birth of osteopathy. So quick side note before we move on, I just want to say that when you look at how DOs practice and how DO schools recruit students, they're known for inclusive and holistic training, and A.T. Still was one of the first people to train women in medicine and also to hold these anti-slavery views. So we're really seeing the groundwork here for equity and justice in medicine being laid by A.T. Still and the osteopathic profession, which I think is pretty interesting, but I digress. Anyway, in 1853, a then 25 year old, Andrew Taylor, decided to follow in his father's footsteps and become a physician. As was common practice at the time, A.T. Still studied under another physician. In this case, he was lucky enough to just study under his father. After finishing up his training, still began to practice the traditional medicine of the time, which included treatments that we would consider questionable, including bloodletting, which is the practice of removing blood from a patient, either through cutting or using leeches, purging, which included vomiting and diarrhea, and a number of other crude methods of attempting to alleviate the symptoms of a patient through balancing the supposed humors of the body. These treatments, in addition to being largely ineffective, put a great amount of stress on still, as he often had to travel long distances across rough terrain just to deliver ineffective remedies to sick and injured patients. While Still was working in this early practice, the state which we now call Kansas was in the process of being admitted to the union. This admission, however, was being slowed down by the result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which stipulated that the inhabitants of the Kansas-Nebraska territory would have to decide on whether or not their specific state would be a free state or would allow slavery. This decision deeply divided the state of Kansas resulting in a four-year civil war between abolitionists and supporters of slavery, with Andrew Taylor and several of his brothers joining arms and taking up the cause. The civil war and Stills' involvement in it created a state of continual danger for Andrew Taylor as he continued to travel and visit patients living in the Kansas countryside. Eventually, Stills' influence and involvement in the conflict came to a head, and in October of 1857, he was elected to represent Douglas County's territorial legislature. And on January 29th, 1861, the Still Family cause was seen to fruition as Kansas was admitted to the Union of the United States as a free state. However, Andrew Taylor would not get much time to rest as the issue of slavery was still weighing heavily on the citizens of the United States. On April 12th, 1861, the United States Civil War began and Still quickly enlisted for the Union, serving as a hospital steward in the 9th Kansas Cavalry, a captain in the 18th Kansas Militia. And because two positions weren't enough, Still also served as a major in the 21st Kansas Militia. Still saw combat for the first time on October of 1864, and Still's outfit helped to repel Confederate forces advancing on Kansas City. Soon, however, Still received orders to disband and his regiment returned home. However, things would seem to get worse upon returning home. After returning to his family, still faced the greatest crisis he had seen yet, as within a five-year span, still lost his first wife, Mary Vaugh, as a result of childbirth complications, and three of his children due to the spinal meningitis epidemic of 1864, and a month after this epidemic, still lost another child, a daughter from his second wife, due to pneumonia. The loss of his wife and children, combined with the gruesome experiences that Still had faced from the Civil War as a physician, caused Still to reject almost everything he had learned about medicine up to that point. This rejection of commonly established methods of treatment led Still to search for new and improved methods of patient care and disease treatment, with this new search being largely based around the study of anatomy. Still, having been raised as a hunter and farmer, had only a basic understanding of the structure and relationships that make up the human body. A fraction of the amount of knowledge that a current medical student would possess because of this still began to study and explore the anatomy of humans through the skeleton during the study of the skeleton still quickly became convinced that most diseases could be alleviated or even cured without drugs the solution still surmised was to find and correct anatomical deviations that interfere with the free flow of blood and what's still referred to as quote nerve force throughout the body And while we still don't know exactly what influences Still used while developing his new system of treatment, we do know that he was deeply influenced by the social and intellectual developments of the time, as well as his religious beliefs. Still was quickly met with backlash for his newly found philosophy and practices, with local churches deeming his new hands-on healing methods as being sacrilegious. His criticism wasn't just limited to the community, however, with his own brothers quickly becoming embarrassed by Still's open criticism of the current state of medicine in the US. His family also criticized still for being reckless and overly willing to scare away new patients with his ideas still asked to present his new ideas at the nearby baker university which the still family had helped to establish only to be met with a refusal by university administrators this criticism led still to leave kansas in 1874 and return to macon missouri where he had lived once still hoped that in macon his beliefs would be better received however still was met again with considerable criticism causing the doctor to move once more, taking his practice 30 miles north to the town of Kirksville. Here in Kirksville, Still started to find a glimpse of acceptance that he was looking for, and he was eventually able to open an office in the Kirksville town square in March of 1875. Still initially advertised himself as a magnetic healer and a lightning bone setter, and traveled to faraway towns such as Hannibal, slowly building his reputation. Eventually, a sizable population had heard of the local doctor practicing drugless, manipulative medicine capable of curing many seemingly hopeless patients. Finally, in 1885, the practice was formalized and officially named osteopathy. Still's practice grew quickly, and he eventually had more patients than he could handle. In order to meet the demand, Still trained his children and a few Kirksville locals in the practice of osteopathy. After some time of teaching and practicing, demand grew considerably for his methods, and Still was persuaded to found a school. In 1892, still opened the American School of Osteopathy, or the ASO, in a two room frame building in Kirksville, with the first class consisting of five women and 16 men. By August of 1894, the school had become a huge success, and the school was quickly improved upon with an infirmatory being opened in January of 1895 and two additional wings in 1897. By this point, over 30,000 osteopathic treatments were being given in the infirmary and on any other given day, over 400 people were believed to have come to Kirksville to be treated. Still, had finally established both his medical school and his osteopathy practice. With everything in place, he was able to focus on a passion that, up until this point, he had not been able to move to center stage, mechanical inventions. In the 1870s, Still received a patent for an improved version of a butter churn. After this, he continued to come up with other inventions, ranging from osteopathy tables to a smokeless furnace in 1910 despite being weakened by a stroke in 1914, Still remained an active figure in the American School of Osteopathy all the way until his death at the age of 89. On December 12, 1917, the old doctor, A.T. Still died. At the time of his death, there were over 3,000 practicing osteopaths. A body of practitioners he was able to train in just 50 years. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this brief biography of A.T. Still and you found this episode of some use or interest. I'm gonna do my best to include more historical points like this over the next couple episodes. Um, I'm working on a side podcast, which is called The Staff and the Snake, which will cover medical topics that are more gruesome, uh, old-timey practices that we would now consider barbaric, or kind of outlandish scientific thoughts of the time, so that should be up soon enough. I'm doing my best to get these episodes up on iTunes, I'm facing some issues with getting an RSS feed established, but that's probably just me not realizing how simple it is. But Yeah, I hope that everyone enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on whatever platform you're using and I'll do my best to respond to them as I'm able. So for now, I'm signing off. Thank you and have a wonderful day.